Episode of Third Degree Burn. My name is Brian Hughes, and I'm here with my good friends Tim Elliott and John Hyatt. Say hi, guys. Hey there. You know we we got a, a good show for you today, but it's also a somber show uh, in in many ways. Um, obviously, you know most of the comic book world is aware of the passing of uh, Neil Adams, and uh, we wanted to do a special episode here where we do some coverage of some some Neil work, and uh, then we were all blown over by the uh, news of uh, the passing of George Perez, which uh, just happened a few days ago, and I mean, we all knew it was coming, but still, we thought maybe a few months from now, Not we didn't think it was going to be this this quick, so uh, that's a surprise. Now, we, we've got our own plans on uh, a show later on down the line for, for George. Is this whole year, we're, we're going to we're going to do some uh, uh, George-centric work. Um, but uh, the, today's episode is pretty much going to be uh, Neil Adams, um, a, a Neil Adams book. And Tim, why don't you tell us uh, where we're going there? Well, I thought it'd be nice since we, we kind of did this with uh, Perez uh, a couple episodes ago. We covered some of his uh, his work. So we thought we'd do stick with that tradition. And so we're not covering a burn book. We are covering... Burn centric, I guess, or burn adjacent. Uh, yeah, burn adjacent. <laughs> burn adjacent. Uh, I thought we'd cover uh, X Men fifty eight, which is his, I believe, his second issue in his run. Uh, it's a short run, but it's well regarded because it kind of came at the end of the series. Uh, it didn't save the series from cancellation, but uh, it's some. Of, I, I I think some phenomenal work, but becoming uh, X Men. You know, it didn't it, it it didn't save it, but it's not because the sales were bad or anything. It's just because they didn't they didn't know that the, the book had already they'd already made the decision to cancel the book by the time these really came out. And that happens a lot because the sales don't. I guess you may get sales quicker now, but back then it, it took so long to get sales in. Nine, it took nine months for them to yeah. get the sales in. On so by the time yeah. they found out, hey, this is selling really well. Oh, you've already canceled it. Um, yeah. <laughs> now so, uh adams had done what 56 and 57 so this is his third issue third issue okay yeah and this is his first marvel work he did this and i think he did a story in one of the horror books um chamber of horrors or something i can't remember but this is really after he came from dc came over to marvel and you know i've heard stories that may be apocryphal of him going into uh, either Stan or Roy Thomas's office and saying, Hey, give me your worst book. And I'll, you know, kind of that Alan Moore story, you know, give me your worst book and I'll turn it around. I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, he was, you know, he started with X-Men, which, uh, had, I think he replaced, is it Don Heck or did the Warner previous, Roth? Who? Warner Roth had done. Warner Roth. Yeah. Um, cause Roy, Roy Thomas was already writing. Roy Thomas was writing it. Um, yeah. Stan was still editing it. Uh, and I can just imagine if you're familiar with Neil's work. And for me, Neil, Neil Adams was always, he had kind of gotten out of the business by the time I got into comics, but he was one of those names that, oh, this is just a name. It's like a Mount Rushmore type name. It's like, yeah, Neil Adams, his stuff is amazing on, and he was no more for DC. So that's why I didn't, I wasn't familiar with his work. He did 
uh, a little bit of Avengers. He's done mostly the X-Men, but he's mostly known for like Dead Man, Batman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, that sort of thing. And he Those hard traveling heroes. Yeah, exactly. Well, he's kind of given credit with kind of revitalizing Batman uh, mm-hmm. in the 70s, making him, you know, getting away from the kind of the goofiness that was left over from the, the Add, 60s Adding series. a level of uh, grittiness and realism to the, right. to the book. Right. Yeah. Kind of what Frank Miller would be credited with later, The Dark Knight. But I'm going to try and hold back a lot of the comments that I made because – I've already recorded um, a, a little bit with David and a little bit with Kirk, and th- that'll be released sometime probably before this episode gets released. Uh, of, you know, our thoughts on Neil Adams right after we heard the news. So, right. uh, I'm yeah, that'll try be kind to, of a supplement. That's going to be like a cocktails and comics or something, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, like I said, I'm going to try and hold back and let you guys carry that until we actually get into the book. Yeah. So I wasn't familiar with Neil Adams. It was just. <laughs> the name and how highly regarded he was and how he was, you know, his use of, uh, you can, you can see his, the influence cause he was a commercial artist and you can see that influence in his work because it looks like the commercial art of the day. His figures are very realistic, very dynamic. He does a lot of crazy angles. He breaks all the panels. He's always expanding past the borders. So I can just imagine going from like a typical nine, panel grid the, the typical kind of house style of the 60s and then you get this dropped in your lap you're like what is this it's very <laughs> different um and i think that's what he's known for and that it's is dynamic yeah yeah that is kind of crazy earth theories but we'll get into that uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he was uh and he uh i think he, this is his, also his first team with tom palmer which he did a lot of work with and I think at the end of this, Denis O'Neill comes on and does a story towards his end. And that kind of that's the first collaboration there, which was much more successful over DC when they were the Batman. And I think the Green Arrow stuff, the Green, the Green Lantern stuff. But but I thought this would just be a nice issue to cover if we're going to cover. And, you know, because it, it ties in with Byrne because of his X-Men work. Uh, and it's got such an iconic cover and introduces uh, not Alex Summers, but introduces Havoc for the first time in this issue. Yeah, and you also mentioned earlier how it connects to that Marvel team-up story that Byrne drew. Exactly. We've already covered that. Uh, Yeah. He teams up with Spider-Man and the Havoc and Spider-Man and then Spider-Man and Thor when they're fighting the living monolith. There's some really interesting points about this story, and I'll get into it when we actually start talking about it. But uh, I I just love the – I think you know this is the issue that introduces – Havoc's costume. And it is still today regarded as one of the coolest costumes in comics. And as, as far as I understand, um, it's just, it's just always cool. Just all black with those concentric circles in the middle. I don't know how I feel about the things over the head, but Hey, you know, well, that's, uh, I, I, and I looked, I couldn't find any information on who designed it. So I don't know if Adams designed it or if it was Ramita senior because I know he was doing a lot of costume designing at that point for Marvel. That doesn't. This scene seems so un Romita. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I, I, I would, I would venture to say it was probably Neil Adams that came up with that, or Neil Adams and Tom Palmer together somehow. Yeah, but uh, yeah. And so yeah. for me, the costume, uh, Tim, you said you don't know what you think about the things on his head. 
Uh, so I grew up with this Havoc, and I loved it. He's one of my favorite characters. And when they introduced the costume without the things, I don't know what you would call them, uh, over his head, and they were either just part of the the hood or whatever, I thought it looked really silly without them for some reason. And I know it seems like, oh, man, they look silly with them. But for, for me, having you know, 30 years of this costume for Havoc and then seeing that other one, I was like, oh, that looks really lame. That's not a costume. It's just a bodysuit. Uh, so I, I thought the, the costume was, I, I think the costume is cool the way it is originally. It's its very, and I can and I can now think Adams may have had a hand in it because it has a graphic design feel to it, a way a graphic designer might design a costume with the these, whatever this headpiece is. And if you look at the headpiece and the way his the, the eye openings and they kind of radiate down, so his whole face, if you're looking at it, is almost kind of like a uh, sunburst. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, and then if the use of the, and I guess it was also Adam that came up with the way of drawing his powers with the concentric circles kind of generating out, showing his plasma blast uh, based on his, the circles on his chest are pretty cool too. <clears throat> yeah, no, it's cool. Um, so I was a, a kid. Uh, and Neil Adams was, at the time, he was, you know, his artwork was so good that, that you just wanted to pick up anything. He was the John Byrne before John Byrne. <laughs> uh, just because of the, like, like you mentioned earlier, just the, the cool different perspectives that he took with um, uh, bringing onto a page, telling a story on a page with art. And... Uh, the, for me, you know, these early issues of X-Men, I mean, they did turn around the book. Uh, and it was already kind of making us a, a, a turn after issue 50. I mean, because with the, the storytelling, it actually started getting a little bit more interesting. I think what killed the book was uh, probably like issues 30 leading up to 48 or 49 when it was... They broke the X-Men up. They were doing solo stories. They had lame things here and there. I think around issue 50, when they started, they really started changing the storytelling to something a lot more dynamic, and it became a lot better. And it's just too bad they didn't see the sales to, in order to keep it. Uh, but uh, adding an artist like Neil Adams, wow, that was phenomenal, really phenomenal back then. And and of course, we see his work with Denny O'Neill and, and uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow. That was amazing stuff as well. So he's just a, or was just a phenomenal artist that really knew how to tell a story. You know, his facial expressions and the way that he designed stuff, I just, he was really a powerhouse in the 70s. And it was really great to see his work. Yeah. And according to, to what I've read, Roy Thomas said he did a lot of the plotting for these issues. Oh, so he and he would write later himself, but he wasn't just a just a a, pen, a penciler, you know. He, and I think he colored these too. I couldn't find confirmation on it, but I think he did the coloring because I had heard mm. listened to. Uh, have you ever listened to a podcast called Around Comics it's out of Chicago? No, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, he's been yeah. around for quite a long time, and they did a. But after Neil's passing, they kind of did a, a show on him and because they were talking, interviewing somebody who dealt with Neil. So he knew him. And he said when he came to Marvel, he told them that you guys have got to expand your color palette. You know, they were using a four color, five color, whatever. He goes, this is 
you know, there's so many more colors out there we can use. You have to. He kind of doubled their color range when he came well, out. You know, they, they actually, and this is mostly DC, up until this point, we're only using a three color palette. And so, and they were even more limited than what Marvel was doing. They were only getting about half the colors out of that that Marvel was. Uh, I found a really good um, story about that on Flashback Universe. I'll, I'll, I'll send you guys the link. Yeah, apparently it has to do with the screens they use, and it's just more expensive mm -hmm. to use to expand your colors. But I guess if he was coloring them, he said, "Hey, you guys have got to, you know, expand this. You can you can do so much more." So, and he was it's still uh, his contribution to non-art is he was a a, a big proponent of uh, uh, artist rights, and he was I think instrumental in getting uh, getting companies to return original art. To artists, so they like could, Jack Jack Kirby finally yeah. got a lot of his art back. Yeah, turn around yeah. and um, and sell them, so they could you know supplement their income. So he and he was also I think instrumental in getting the Schusters a lot of recognition and probably some money for yeah he, he got Superman. them a severance he got them a severance yeah they were getting paid about twenty two thousand um, dollars a year from DC thanks to the work of Neil. I mean, obviously, you know, even uh, in the 90s when it uh, finally came about, I don't, it wasn't enough, but it gave them something. Yeah. So he was, uh, so he was not just a, you know, he wasn't just an artist. He was, you know, he was in it. He was in it for the artist. He was in it for, you know, the industry. And, and you know, and what you said, he's, he was said about John Burton was nice that, you know, he's, mm -hmm. that he would think Yeah, we were that, talking offline and yeah, he had, uh, there was an interview and it's out on YouTube somewhere where they'd asked him about John Burns. This is several years ago before Elswin. And um, Neil was lamenting the fact that Byrne wasn't working in the industry. And, you know, he, he actually, you know, talked about him basically saying to the effect that, you know, his heart was broken by the industry. And he just hopes that John recovers enough to come back and work again. Um, and and you, can see, uh, you can see on Neil's face that, you know, there was definite uh, – I don't know how to describe it as like a not not affection, but a reverence for the the work that Burns done. And and you, I mean, obviously, you know that Burns first started out, he was definitely in the Neil Adams mold, and and he took a lot of his cues from Neil, and he you know did a lot of homage and aping, swiping, if you want to say or whatever of Neil's work, uh, Burn and Grell and and other guys that came out at that time, even Keith Giffen back in the day. Um, you know, we're following in Neil's footsteps and you could see that the pedigree was there. Uh, Byrne, definitely one of the more successful ones out there, you know, to, to do that. And definitely a lot more prolific than Neil or uh, any of the, any of the other artists. I mean, Byrne is definitely the most prolific comic book artist that I can think of with over 40,000 pages of work. Where right. Neil, yeah, Neil has uh, produced uh, four thousand four hundred and two pages for all the stories. That's what I think is interesting. That for as much an impact and as highly regarded as he is, he didn't have a, a long lifespan in comics. It's about ten years, I guess. Well, he, he started, started to walk away from it around seventy-eight. Um, I mean, he was already getting away from it a little bit, but yeah, seventy-eight. He just went off to do commercial stuff. It seemed. It looks like after the Superman versus Muhammad Ali, um, but I mean, he was already weaning off, you know, not not keeping too busy in the late 70s. And in the early 80s, he did some work at Pacific and continuity. 
Uh, well, he started continuity. That continuity yeah. studios. He started with uh, uh, Giordano, right? That uh, the 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 publisher Inker, uh, and they were doing storyboards for films and TV and stuff. So maybe that's where he coming from a commercial art background. Maybe that's where he felt that. Where maybe it's been that was more lucrative, you know. Well, yeah, definitely. Commercial artwork, artwork is always going to be a lot more lucrative yeah. than, than especially the the comic book stuff. And the, the fact is, with comic books, you know, you've got the every job is a journeyman job. Mm-hmm. You know, and in and, and, and these times, you don't get a contract usually. Yeah. Well, like Byrne, I think he has probably a larger number of really iconic covers that people will imitate or homage later on. Mm-hmm that I think those two have that in common. They have done enough covers that, that are just we'll, so iconic and people copy them. Right. We'll try to put a link in the um, the show notes. Um, but if you go on Mike's Amazing World and bring up Neil and then pull up the cover gallery for Neil, uh, it's just an amazing body of work there in just the covers. Uh, and so many of them iconic and so many of them just really dynamic. Uh, and of course, you'll see things like, you know, the uh, Krypton, never, Kryptonite Nevermore, uh, Action Comics 485. I don't know if you guys remember that one where he's breaking or Superman is breaking the uh, Kryptonite chains. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. And I didn't also realize that he co-created Man Bat. I didn't know yeah, and, and, and Razal Ghul. Yeah, Razal Ghul, Razal Ghul. Well, do you want to get into the book or do we, we have a, a new email from Nigel? And it's a little lengthy one. Do we want to cover that because it's a follow-up to our last episode, or do we want to save it? I think we should save it until we actually go back to until we go back to another burn book. Okay. Um. Yeah. I, think, I mean, because again, I, there are people that will only listen to us when we when we cover burn. Okay. That's fair. You know. Yeah. You know, this gives people a break, but. I'm pretty okay. sure Nigel's listening right now, though, <laughs> and uh, Nigel's going to be uh, up on some upcoming episode or episodes uh, as we get ready for our hundredth yep. episode. I don't know if it's going to be then because, I mean, it's it's very relevant with George Perez, and we're going to do some coverage on. Do I dare say, Project Pegasus? Dun, dun, dun. That's six issues. We got to figure that one out. How we're going to do that? I mean, I don't know. If, do we want to do like we did Champions? Or do we? Well, we know. did Man of Steel in two episodes of three each. Maybe we could do yeah. that. And that would be doable. good because I think the, the 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 first three episodes were burned. First three issues were burned. The second three issues were Perez. So that would that would be that would be good. Yeah. To, to do it that way. Tied okay. Together. Good. Smart. See, you know, we just always figuring out when we're banging our heads together. Well, Tim, do you want to? Um, well, before we get into it, I just got I got to ask because. It just seems like it's been a while since we've all talked. Uh, have you guys seen anything good in the theaters? I mean, there's been a, a, several movies that are really, really big. The uh, Secrets of Dumbledore, Doctor Strange. What else was there? I have not seen not Strange seen, yet. I haven't either. I did see the 1970s Strange. Oh, my. Which now, did you, very interesting. Where did you find uh, that? Um, it's a mail right online. Now. We found it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a link to it out there somewhere. Um, yeah. And then there's the Doctor Morbius movie. I don't know if you guys are aware of that. That's basically a complete rip of Doctor Strange. I think it was made in the 90s or late 80s. 
the the one that you're you're talking about there was the one from the seventies that came on CBS, I believe. Yes, it was a made-for-TV movie. Yeah. It, was a, it wasn't bad. No, it wasn't. Uh, if you look at it through today's eyes, it's horrible. I but seem to remember a line if you look from at it. it through <laughs> the eyes from back when it was created and who it was created for. It's 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 a good film. It's not bad. It's not a bad thing. I think it's on par with because it was uh, it's actually that was a, a pilot, wasn't it? Because they were trying to get that off the air, off the ground yeah. with the Hulk, and they you know they tried Spider-Man. to Spider Man. Yeah, they had that deal with Universal to try to create, and the the, the Hulk, the Hulk's the one that made it, and it basically because they broke with with um, the standard would would be a superhero and basically made that into a different type of show. But the Fugitive. The Fugitive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But. I think I remember seeing Doctor Strange when it aired on TV. Um, yeah, I, I did. I remember same, that, that yeah. he said that one command in the astral plane by the powers of what Hyman and CG and whatever, I command you be gone. And I'm like, okay, well, if I ever go to the astral plane, I know how to protect myself. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then uh, we just finished Moon Knight. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Big film, but uh, it was actually, that was actually pretty good. I was, um, uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, that's sure. that's one of those things I think that gets more enjoyable with multiple viewings. Um, and because I'm sitting there watching it and I'm just trying to absorb everything that's going on. And I realize, oh, my gosh, there's all this other subtext from what happened in the first and second, third episodes. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch those all over again mm-hmm. because the characters that they introduce and the way they introduce them, you're not necessarily sure who's doing what. Right. So it's so uh, really, really. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I think Moon uh, Knight suffered from lack of Moon Knight. <laughs> there needed to be more Moon Knight. I, I really Knight. enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, I mean, I, I've been avoiding watching trailers for movies lately unless I'm actually forced to watch them. So I didn't, uh, I didn't watch all the trailers for this one leading up to it. So I had, I was actually surprised the direction that they went with it. Um, create some questions for me, and it uh, makes me wonder about uh, other things that we've seen in the in the MCU. And so I'm going to have to. Uh, it's going to take a couple watchings. I mean, it's a good movie, really, really good, but uh, it kind of messes with you know my preconceived notions of certain characters. So uh, and there there are good surprises in it too. Well, I. <laughs> Yes. Are they trying to maybe just readjust with the exodus of all of the main leads that we've we've had so far? That maybe they're just trying to readjust the the playing field with characters and stuff to try to get the next generation up and running. Well, uh, I I don't want to give any spoilers. Um, you know, they they throw some interesting things at us because obviously when you're dealing with the multiverse, you're dealing with the anybody can be anywhere doing anything. Right. And and so you, you, you've got the possibilities, you know, things like this were introduced to us back 40 years ago, whenever we had all the the, the alternate universe stories, you know, at, at DC and, you know, at Marvel, when they would sit there and give us alternate <coughs> histories and such. So and every time they did that, we were just it's like being spoon fed. It we're just like, oh, no, give us more, give us more, give us more. And now we're at a point where they feel like, let's just throw the book at them. You know, they did that with what if. And this is like a continuation of that what if. And I don't want to say any more because I really don't want to spoil anything. Uh, oh, I, is it 
going to roadmap us into the future? I don't think so. Well, I, I'd always felt that the introduction of the multiverse was a way of, to your point, John, of replacing, because you could get an alternate Iron Man. This is Iron Man from this universe, you know, pluck a new actor. Yeah. This is Captain America, pluck that actor, uh, which would, you know, it's a clever way of replacing your, your main cast. But I also heard that this is not really a spoiler, but that we, uh, uh, we, we finally get it. Uh, our universe gets its designation. Mm-hmm. So, which I think actually that that's a mistake. Well, yeah, I mean, I think they made they made a mistake in the movie. Yeah. Oh, you mean the number? Yeah. Oh. Because the number represents something else. That exactly. I yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see what you're pointing. Well, does it? And this is not you going to disappoint anything, but does the? I'm assuming there are teasers, and there are. You mean uh, there are end credit scenes and mid credit scenes. Do any of that set up anything new or is it just like more like uh, Easter eggs? No, it sets up, it sets up, sets up new stuff. stuff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I would say. Okay. Um, I have to remind myself though of that. Um, now it also, I went and saw yesterday, we went and saw, um, the secrets of Dumbledore, which is the latest in the fantastic beast series. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's going to continue after this one because this one does not seem to be doing as well financially or um, critically. That being said, I really enjoyed it. I, I don't know what everybody else is missing, but also I think that that the strength of these movies is more in Dan Fogler's character, Jacob Kowalski, than it is anything else. I mean, Eddie Redmayne is awesome as Newt's commander. But he's the star. He, yeah, he's the star. But, you know, uh, Dan Fogler's character, the the muggle that's stuck in the middle of all this, is just so earnest. And um, he's somebody that's good for the sake of being good. You know, it, it, he wants to be a good guy. And he just sees himself as a little cog in the big machine. He doesn't see himself as this grand character. You know, uh, he's humble. He, he's, he's the... The picture of all those guys that came back from World War II. Now he came back from World War One, but uh, he, he again, he's just such a, a likable character, and he's the best part of that series. Well, he again, that's my pers- opinion. He certainly has more presence than Eddie Redmayne. Uh, I, I kind of like Eddie Redmayne, but he picks him. He's kind of a really well, kind of a, I would say, a bland character. I've only seen the, I think I've seen the first one, and maybe parts of the second one this is the third one right yeah this is the third one and and you know it's funny because like the first time that i saw eddie redmayne in something that i recognized was uh one of the wachowski's films the one with myla kunis and um jupiter ascending yeah jupiter ascending and i really disliked that movie he alternated between whispering and screaming I don't even remember him screaming. I only remember him whispering. And he yeah. never raises his voice in any of the Fantastic Beast films. Oh, well, no, and and so it's it's got that same kind of thing. Um, and I did watch the movie where he portrayed Stephen Hawking. Oh, I can't remember the title. But I mean, again, very, like, very like thing, I said, I the, these the the David Yates has been the director of every movie in the Wizarding World for at least the last ten years, starting with um, the Order of the Phoenix. And he's got a great – the only person that had a better grasp of the Wizarding World, I think, was Alfonso Cuaron, who I think he did the third one. He did, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the Prisoner of Azkaban. I thought Prisoner of Azkaban was probably the, the best produced of the original series of movies. And then David Yates 
his one ones were right right behind it but i kind of hold all of his on that same level he's very consistent um and so i i can't sit there because i mean all the books order of the phoenix was uh an unedited very 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 long book that was torturous but the the movie was actually very well edited and tight and so that it, it didn't uh drag on all those things that made the book so laborious to read yeah, that, that one is i think it's her longest book yeah she needed she needed an editor she needed an editor with with guts an editor that, that can someone that can speak to power and that's problem when people get you know big and powerful in any industry is that people have a hard time saying no to power no, i yeah, see it all the time you can love yes men yeah. The other thing is, it was that uh, the, 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 and this is the last thing I'll say about that uh, while we wait for John to get back, he had to step away for a moment, is that um, a lot of what goes on in that movie, uh, The Secrets of Dumbledore, um, just is very relevant for our times. And uh, I mean, we're getting beat over the head left and right on that. We're seeing it in everywhere. We see it in the new Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which also really good, in my opinion. Um, but we're getting beat over the head by the, you know, the, the, the troubles of our modern, modern times. Um, well, strange new worlds. I will say this, and I don't want to go on a rant because I, mm-hmm. I think I've made it pretty vocal, but I'm not a fan of the new Star Trek. Um, the last season of Picard I thought was, was awful. I, um, I haven't finished it yet, but I understand your, your concerns there. I'm kind of, yeah, in a weird place about that series. Strange new worlds is, is definitely going in the right direction. It's mm-hmm. course correcting is improving, but it's got a lot of they they try and I don't somebody saying this I'm not going to spoil anything, but they try too hard to connect it. Yes, it's connected to Star Trek overall. Yes, it's the Enterprise. Yes, it's got Spock on it, but then they try to connect too many different things yep. to the past. Yep. Let's just have Pike Spock number one or number two, uh, and then. A, a whole, either bring back the characters from the pilot, which you know we some of those characters, or create all new characters. You don't have. To, I'd, you know, I'd have, love to see them bring in Lee Kelso, who was killed in um, Where No Man Has Gone Before. Yeah, bring him in, or bring in Doctor Boyce. Bring him in. You know, you don't have but to doc, have. I like Doctor Mabenga. I like Doctor Mabenga, and he, you know, there is some continuity there, but but. Uh, and I understand why they're doing that because they want they want to have a diverse cast. Yeah. Um, but Christine but, Chapel is not a, not anything offensive there. No, but she doesn't need I, to be in there. She does not need to be in there. Let bring it. Let's have a new character. You know, Ohura doesn't need to, need to be in there. You know, if you want a diverse character, create a diverse character. Just don't have it be Ohura. Now, Ohura, of course, is a cadet that's on board, so it, her time is supposed to be limited there. Well, so I don't think she's going to be on it for very oh, long. I, come on, we know she's going to be on it, and and, and to me, pulling, that, that just turns her into Wesley. Well, exactly because they're pulling her. He already says in the first episode he calls her the prodigy. Who's this new prodigy or something like that? Which is kind of what she was called in the Kelvin universe. That you know yeah. she was this prodigy linguistics person, um, and. And I haven't seen the second episode yet, but my guess is she's going to be going like all the away missions. Um, and my other gripe would be that they need to tone down the humor. They have uh, Pike needs to be just a little more serious. He doesn't seem to be taking it serious. So there's, they're very quippy. And yeah, but I of, mean, Pike's Pike's motivations define that quippiness. 
I mean, it's a defense mechanism, clearly. Okay, and, okay, okay. So if you're if he's going to Spider Man route, so that's his okay. But let's tone it down some. Let's tone it down from some of the rest. Of, and I think they have got Spock wrong. Absolutely, they have not got Spock right. Whether the JJ movies, where they brought him back in Discovery, or they've got him here, they just yeah. do not understand how he, to write that character. He's not. He he should be stiff. He should be yelling everything. He should be. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the thing, I, I remember reading um, the Rift, which was a Peter David book, I think. And uh, it had two parallel storylines, one of them on the this enterprise with, you know, Pike and Spock in number one. And then uh, another one later times with Kirk Spock in the uh, the movie era. And I the, the thing was Spock was just so new on board, so fresh and green. And he really was like um, looking at number one with almost awe in how she was so flawlessly logical and she just always knew the right thing to say or right thing to do. And uh, like when she used the word fascinating to describe something, that's where he picked it up, you know. Mm-hmm. But again, this is Peter David writing in, in a novel. It's not canon or anything. No, and I, I trust just, David because I know he's a huge Star Trek fan. But, yeah, yeah. Um, they, I, I think what they fall back on, if you watch The Cage or if you watch The Menagerie, mm-hmm. you'll see scenes of Spock smiling and seeming to show emotion. So they yes. fall back on that. Well, that's I think that's because they hadn't Leonard Nimoy hadn't discovered that character yet. If that had, if that had been picked up and that had been the actual pilot, I think we we'd have seen the Spock we we know. I mean, you can't fall back on that pilot where they weren't kind of they haven't quite discovered who they were yet. Right. And honestly, number one, number two is uh, or number one. I keep calling number two. <laughs> Don't, don't be up, number two. Don't step in number two. I'm thinking Dr. I am Abel. not a number two. <laughs> uh, she was actually more Spock-like in that pilot than <laughs> Spock was. And I think that was on purpose. So I think what happened was when it went, when they had the new pilot with Shatner, they merged those two. They took yeah. Leonard Nimoy and they took number one and merged them so he became much more emotionless. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I, I mean, I like Bruce Greenwood. I just, there are tweaks to it. It's not like Discovery and Picard where I can almost not watch it. Well, and and this is the funny thing. In the first two episodes, this Chris Pike contradicts the Bruce Greenwood Chris Pike from the Kelvin storylines. 100%. In this second episode or the first one? Well, in both first and second episode, he he does something in each one of them that contradicts Chris Pike from that one. So I mean now you know we'll have to wait some time down the right. down the road we can discuss that because yeah I was talking to my wife about that last night saying you know he did this here and here he's doing this you know well they it's they, it, it's all about prime directive or general order number right, one yeah they they also are continuing continuing the uh, the trend on, on discovery of showing us technology that is almost far beyond what we saw next gen. I mean, at least let's say this for Enterprise, whether you love it or hate it, uh, they at least were respectful for that. Their technology was was much more primitive than what we saw on TOS. And suddenly with Discovery and on this the new Strange New Worlds, their technology is far beyond anything that we could have seen. You know, at least be a little respectful of the canon, you know. So you can still tell yeah. a great story. You don't have to have all these cool whiz-bang special effects or tech 
you know, tech that they have that they can do certain things. Um, you know, my big complaint was like with not to spoil the first episode, but they they do something to go down to a planet to kind of blend in. And I think they could have done that differently than the way they they their solution was. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about Strange New Worlds. I love the episodicness of it. I'm glad we don't have this big bang that we've got to solve in ten episodes. You know, um, it's like it's <laughs> it's totally like um, the comics where they're writing for the trade. Well, they're writing for the ten episode arc, and sometimes exactly. it just doesn't need to be that. Exactly. But so I'm really looking forward to the episodic return to the roots of Star Trek because that's to me is more about what Star Trek is uh then and then what discovery's done and uh picard and all that with it although i did like picard season the, the latest season we finished that as well and you know it was a satisfying end for me for that for that show but uh, yeah i really liked i like the characters um i see your points about spock but i think they'll develop it along and uh i think it's kind of exciting i hope they don't bring like everybody back from the original series to be like the younger versions of themselves. <laughs> Cause I, I just like, it would be right, nice. Let's to see don't, some yeah. Well, they, they, they did pull a fake <clears throat> on us. Yeah. Well, you mean when they got, yeah. uh, when they got, uh, crewman guy from, uh, galaxy. Club? <laughs> <laughs> that's what he looked. He does look like him, doesn't he? Yeah. Again, so that's, an, that's another connection. It's like, we don't need that. We don't need yeah. that connection. You can tell a great story in that universe. It doesn't always have to have all these, what they, you know, people call them member berries or keys jingling. You know, it's all this fan service of no, just tell a really good story. It's all I want. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they come up with. It'll be it'll be fun. Yeah, I need to I need to watch. My last complaint will be, let's stop <laughs> trying to give every. Uh, this started with Patrick Stewart. Let's stop giving every captain their own catchphrase for going to war. <laughs> you know, it started okay. with make it so or engage. And they felt like, oh, well, we got to get that. That's a thing. Kirk never really had that, but yeah. with uh, yeah, discovery, got to do that with everybody. Yeah, let's let's fly, and he says, punch it, um, I think, or hit it, or something. Hit it. No, hit he it. said, punch it in, in in the Kelvin. Kelvin. He says, hit it. Two thousand nine. Yeah, he yeah. says, hit it, and this one doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. But, but anyway, uh, we're here to talk about Neil Adams right. and X Men yeah. Fifty Eight. That's Star so, Trek writing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> But hey, you know this is this is you know part and parcel of the show that we do to to paraphrase Chris Claremont, yeah, uh, <laughs> of the show you're that we do. You're not just getting comics; so. you're also getting fandom, so yep. extended stuff. So yeah. that, that's who we are. That's who we are, and then we have fun with it. Yep, 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 yep. And uh, I'll wait until. Well, no, I'm going to tell you guys right now. I'm going to kind of. Uh, uh, do something here a little unusual, and that's going to hawk something for for myself um, or my family. Actually, uh, Beth, Chris, and I have started uh, recording movie commentaries on all of the legendary uh, Godzilla uh, films or Godzilla verse films. So uh, we've done we recorded for 2014 Godzilla, Kong Skull Island, King of the Monsters, and Godzilla versus Kong. We're probably going to move on and go ahead and do things like uh, uh, Cloverfield and some of the other uh, other kaiju movies that come oh. out, Pacific Rim. You're not doing the Showa era. Uh, Chris wants to go back and cover some of those. I, I know I want to do War of the Gargantuas, which is – I don't know what era that's considered. I don't know that's the era. That's, that's, that's Showa. Showa is up to 75. 
Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, there's some, there are ones out there that I really want to cover. I do want to cover the original one. I just don't know which version uh, we want to do. And I know some of them, Beth will have interest in others. She won't. Uh, she if doesn't you, like watching Cloverfield because she gets sick every time she watches yeah, it. Yeah. If you cover War of the Gargantuas, I would love to be on that show. Really? I love that. I love that movie. So do I. It is still one of my favorite Kaiju movies of all time. I watched it just the other day. It and it's ripe Tubi. for a remake. It's ripe for a it remake. It is, yeah. Because it is a horror movie compared to all the others, which have always been disaster films. And but it needs I to mean, be suitmation. It doesn't need to be CGI. It needs to be two guys in some suits. I don't know. I don't know. I think that there's a way to do it. Um, you could do it. I, mean, I think it, they, obviously you, they did you Kong. could make a combination, kind of like what Spielberg did in Jurassic Park. You, you could you could combine the two to create uh, create that, and I think that's probably what they would do. But now, uh, oh, and I wanted to ask you, Tim, have you watched Shin Ultraman? Because I know that premiered what day before yesterday. No, in, in the, in it's the US, on. So. Uh, well, I, I, Luke Jacanetti was talking about that on his show. Uh, is it a purchase film or is it on like Crunchyroll or where, where are you watching I, it? I haven't looked at it yet. Um, oh. I'm, that's something I want to, and I got to get time with my family to do it because I know Chris is really hyped about it. My wife, not so much, but you know, hey. I haven't but, seen it. I've, I've watched some of the Netflix um, Ultraman cartoon. I got about halfway through that, but it didn't hold I my attention. You, you, had you ever watched the original Ultraman series? TV I've series? Seen, I've seen bits of it. I've got it. I've got it, the, the whole series, and I watch them as Luke will cover those. In his show, um, Earth Destructing Directive, but and I watch the episodes as he covers them. But I haven't like watched the whole series. And I've got a new one I picked up called uh, Iron King, which is the same studio, same premise. It's a guy that becomes a giant hero, except in this one, if he runs out of water, then he shrinks back down. <laughs> I wonder if they're ever going to bring back Jet Jaguar, uh, uh, infamously uh, from Godzilla versus Megalon. Megalon. Yeah. Which was really supposed to be a, that was going to be a, I don't think that was a Godzilla film at first, I think. It was kind of like Ebra Horror of the Deep. That was supposed to be a Kong film. And then, that's why he's on an island, that's why he dry, fights the giant crab. But they couldn't get, at that point, Toho had lost the rights to Kong and they couldn't use him. So, they uh, they just threw in Godzilla. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll put him in there instead. So, that's why they have the, the that juice that the, I think it's called the Red Circle. Whoever the bad guys are, are making the stuff that they spray out of the boat to keep Ibera from attacking them. Also, if you do War <clears throat> the Gargantuas, I'd like to be in that commentary. If you do King Kong Escapes, I love that film about as much. Yes, I, I do too. Um, yeah. and, and, and that's one of those that's just like near and dear to my heart, but it's that redheaded stepchild of the of the kaiju world simply because of the way the rights got so yeah. twisted about it's there. Twisted. I think I like okay. Mecha Kong. Well, actually, Mecha Kong predates Mecha Godzilla. So I didn't a, know. Yeah. That was 66, and Mecha Godzilla didn't come out until 72, I think. All right, guys. Yeah, we got, <laughs> we got, we got, we, yeah, we got to get to our book. We really need to, to go. Too much kaiju. So, yeah, too much. <laughs> it's it's just right. going off the rails. Yep. All right, Tim. We can pull us, it back for something, another show. Give us the goods. All right. We, as stated, we are covering X-Men number 58. They're not uncanny yet. They're just the X-Men. The strangest... Oh, no, they're not even the strangest teens of all time. Not anymore, they're, no. They're just... Uh, they're but just, on the inside, they're called the most unusual fighting team of all time. 
That's true. Anyway, sorry, Tim. Go. No worries. Uh, our writer is Roy Thomas. Our penciler is Neil Adams. Our inker is Tom Palmer. And again, I think our colorist is Neil Adams. I couldn't get confirmation on that, but he was doing most of the coloring. Our letterer is Artie Simic, and our cover art is by Neil Adams and Sam Rosen, and Stan Lee is our editor. Uh, it's funny, because Mike's Amazing World says Tom Palmer inked the, the cover. Well, I, I didn't look at that. I'm looking on Marvel uh, Wiki, Marvel Wiki, and it's got yeah. Sam Rosen, so maybe it is Palmer doing both. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. We have a release date of May 13th, 1969, with a cover date of July 1969. Uh, and a cover price of a whopping 15 cents. Mm. 32 pages, I think, 20 are story. And this has been reprinted pretty heavily. Uh, it's in Giant Size X-Men number 2 from 75, X-Men Classics number 1 from 83, Greatest Battles of the X-Men from 94, X-Men Visionaries volume 2 from 96, and Marvel Masterworks volume 61, X-Men volume 6 <laughs> from 2006. How did you guys originally read it? I think I, I it. saw it in Giant Size X-Men 2. I know for a fact the way I got it was the um, the X-Men classic starring the X-Men number one. I remember getting that was in that nice Amando or Baxter format. Mm. So same kind of print as that Star-Lord single shot reprint of all the Star-Lord, the Burns Fairmont Star-Lord story. Mm. Um, and it's got that... What? Okay. Well, I said I may have read it either when I, I own this copy, so either I read it when I it, picked it up or from. It's got that Visionary. great Zek. It's got that great Zek cover where Cyclops is blasting a hole right through the Sentinel's head. Yep. From the side, you know, through the temple, and um, yeah, but that's uh, golly, I got that's that's how I I found it, and that came out in what eighty two, eighty three. So I picked that up. I had to pick that up at Fantastic Worlds when they opened a new shop over on Kelmont. Bob Wayne store. You all know the name Bob Wayne. It was at DC Public Relations for many, many years. And he started out as a comic book uh, shop guy. So yes, you can succeed beyond the comic book shop. Always. <laughs> our, our cover co- proclaims, well, it's got a great cover on it, a big close-up of uh, Havoc with the X-Men kind of behind his concentric circles on his chest, and, it's, and, and it proclaims, Enter the Man Called Havoc. But our story is actually called Mission Murder, and it's part two of this, like a three-part three party, three part arc, so this is like the middle story. X-Men 58, Mission Murder. While watching a news story about Larry Trask, son of the late Sentinel inventor Bolivar Trask, Iceman and Beast are attacked by a new model Sentinel. As the news story plays on and Trask reveals that he has rebuilt and redesigned his father's robots with new weapons and they can be pre-programmed with orders or operated by a remote control helmet. Bobby and Hank fight their attacker. While Bobby is captured by the Sentinel, Beast is forced to flee the scene when he realizes that he is outclassed against his Sentinel attacker. While in Egypt, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, and Angel take a break from their search for Scott's brother, Havoc, to listen to, to listen to a radio call from Hank. Hank explains to the group of Larry Trask and his Sentinels in Bobby's subsequent previous capture, <laughs> <laughs> but has to cut the transmission short to focus on avoiding capture himself. 
Warren defies Cyclops' orders and decides to fly back to the United States on his own to help his friends against the Sentinel's menace. While at the secret hideout of Larry Trask, Larry talks to Justice Justice Robert Chalmers or Chalmers 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 to express his concern about the proof Larry has provided that all mutants are a menace and to tell him that the public is not entirely sold on the idea. Larry agrees to let the press talk to the captured X-Men once he is rendered harmless. When Bobby arrives at Sentinel Base, Larry has him treated to a chemical steam bath that nullifies his ice powers for four hours. When Bobby attempts to attack Trask, a Sentinel stops him and Larry reveals that a hidden video camera has recorded the attempted attack, which he intends to use as proof of the mutant menace that he is trying to sell, and vows to get revenge on the X-Men for his father's death. Taken to a holding cell, Iceman finds both Laura and Alex there. He learns from Alex that Trask has designed him a special suit to control and regulate his powers, and given him the codename Havoc. Alex then tells Bobby that he has given all this in return for making a deal with Trask so that Lorna will be left alone. However, Bobby brands Alex a coward before hearing this, and as he's being told, a sentinel enters the room and grabs Lorna. Realizing that Trask's word was meaningless, he unleashes a powerful plasma blast that destroys the sentinel. Entering the room with another sentinel, Larry then uses a device that nullifies Alex's power. This horrifies Alex as this will reawaken the mutant abilities of Professor Abdul, allowing him to transform into the living monolith once more. While in Egypt, Ahmet Abdul is meeting with the government officials about his allocation, altercation with the X-Men earlier when he suddenly feels his powers returning to him. However, before he can completely transform into the living monolith once more, Two Sentinels arrive on the scene and douse Abdul with a special adhesive that blocks him from the cosmic rays that feed his power, neutralizing his threat and allowing for easy capture. Trash sends out an army of Sentinels to capture all the remaining mutants in the world, and a pair captures Angel with ease. This capture is watched through the horrified eyes of Scott and Jean, who witness this capture while looking out the window of the plane they are using to fly back to the States. While at a secret hideout, Ms. Miro and Magneto are attacked by another Sentinel, when Magneto attempts to stop the robot, it blasts him, revealing that the being that Mesmero has been working with all these months is not the real Magneto, but a robot, and is easily captured by the Sentinels. And Doctor Doom immediately sues. Uh, <laughs> with only a few mutants still free, Larry considers his task a success and welcomes the arrival of Judge Chalmers, Chalmers, who Larry proudly shows his work to. When Chalmers realizes that the captured mutants are being kept in suspended animation, he expresses his displeasure that the mutants are not being detained in a more humane way. This, this comment infuriates Larry, who tells the judge that if he cannot count on his support, he will deal with mutant menace alone. However, Chalmers manages to calm down the emotional trask. Larry then turns his attention to the members of the X-Men, who are still not yet captured, who are planning on locating the kidnapped mutants with a mini cerebral unit. As Trask watches as he swears he will capture these mutants, he swears on the medallion that he is wearing and reflects that it was a gift from his father shortly before the death of his mother. At that time, Bolivar was asked his son to swear to never take it off. Larry's recollection, recollection, recollection is cut short when suddenly his base is attacked by the Banshee who attempts to destroy the Sentinels with a sonic scream. However, Trask has built Sentinels specifically to deal with him and they knock him out with a sonic knock out the sonic screaming mutant with a sonic blast counterattack. Furious at this attack, Larry orders the Sentinels to hunt down the remaining mutants and destroy them. Not wanting to be party to murder, Chalmers attempts to stop Larry and is forced to strike the boy. The force of the blow knocks the medallion off Larry, 
and upon this happening, the Sentinels detect the presence of another mutant, Larry himself. A nearby mutant grabs Larry and informs him that because he is a mutant, his command over them is null and void. And despite this, they are going to carry out his last command, destroy all mutants. You said a nearby, mut- nearby mutant grabbed Larry? It was a nearby Sentinel, wasn't it? It is a nearby Sentinel. Did I say mutant? Okay. Nearby Sentinel grabs be, Larry. Sentinel, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, I mean, that's, that's uh, a, a decent synopsis of the story. It definitely brings out all the story points. Was yeah, that I, from the Marvel Wiki? It's or from the Marvel you? Wiki. I didn't, okay. I didn't have time to write my own, so that's why it was so wordy. I think I said Sentinel about 12 times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this is a dense story. It's a dense story. Yeah, it is. Very dense. And the artwork, of course, is dense and laid out in, in, in an interesting way. And there's a couple things that just kind of, you know, really surprised me. Think about this for just a moment. You're a mutant. You just discovered your mutant power and uh, a psychotic murdering villain has given you a costume and your name. <laughs> and you're going to carry that with you forever. That, that, that? Yeah, that's interesting that he kept that name. He's like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. But again, you know. I mean, it, it is very descriptive. His power wreaks havoc with everything and everyone except Cyclops. And <laughs> the costume is pretty darn cool. <laughs> It's so yeah, it's very cool. I mean, we should say that the story up to this was that the, I think three issues before, four issues before, they they found Alex, and it was later revealed that he he didn't know he was a mutant, and it turns out he was, but he couldn't control his powers, and he's linked to uh, the living monolith, so they both kind of absorb cosmic energy, and while Alex is up and about. The living model can't become, you know, he can't transform into his true form of the, this giant mutant. So he's always trying to capture Alex to kill him or block his absorption of the cosmic rays so that he can become the monolith. I do have a question about that because, you know, they, they suppress Alex's ability to absorb the cosmic rays. And so therefore the living monolith gets full monopoly on it. And then they stop him. Where do those cosmic rays go? Who else? Is benefiting from this if they, you know, if, if, if possible. Oh, the Silver Surfer soaking all that stuff up. Uh, I thought it'd be like maybe, maybe, maybe that's what made the things, you know, transformations continue on. You know. Oh, the cosmic rays. Well, yeah. I Ring never of, read the graphic novel though, the Revenge of the Mini Living Monolith. That's one of my favorite. I love that. That's one of like one of the first graphic novels I bought. And I stayed away from it because Mark Silvestri did the artwork, and I wasn't liking his work at the time. <laughs> I know that later he be, he his art is more polished and such, but his early artwork I and also, yeah. well, I mean, again, he's he makes great poses, no doubt. He makes great poses, but he doesn't have storyteller chops back then. So, you know, other other artists come in, will take a story, and you get very good sequential art and everything. When you see Mark Silvestri's characters and those, they're all in poses rather than action yes. but uh, so i'll have to take a look at it because the cover does look really good um and and i know that Silvestri is one of those that came from that same school that looks at guys like neil adams and you know just kind of morphs on it, from there yeah it has a i will say it has a neil adams feel and it's kind of nice the coloring on it's nice too yeah it's it's not that that Silvestri is a bad artist he's not he's very good at what he draws it's <clears> just that his sequential storytelling for me did not work 
Well, yeah, that's, I mean, you can be a great artist, but if you can't, I mean, you, you're not doing posters. You have to be able to tell a story. I mean, he's mm-hmm. why I lost interest in the X-Men. Well, that and the storylines that Claremont had going on. I didn't want to go to Australia or <laughs> have them be fake dead and all that, you know, or just the Mr. Sinister storyline really turned me off, but that's as much Claremont and Sloan Street together. Yeah. Speaking of Mr. Sinister, I was reading uh, Alex's backstory, and I guess they had retconned this at one point, that the reason why he's tied in with um, the living uh, monolith is Mr. Sinister, uh, I guess he's responsible for when uh, Scott Summers and Alex Summers parachuted, and I don't know where the other the other brother was that they bring in. When they parachuted out, uh, and and that's where Scott gets his head injury, so he can't control his power. Yeah, uh, flaming debris hits the parachute. Yeah. Scott shields Alex, and he gets brain damage. Bank, yeah, and excuse me, brain damage. <laughs> I know how to say it. I'm just Eddie Murphy was in my head. They, uh, <laughs> Sinister comes in and thinks that Scott may be a mutant with the most potential, so he kind of focuses on him and, and has him split up in orphanages. And then later, when Alex uses his mutant powers for the first time, Sinister thinks, oh, maybe he's the guy with more power. So he takes a sample of his DNA and implants it or grafts it onto um, the living monolith so that they share this cosmic absorption. And that's why they're linked instead of just being some fluke. But So that that's what turned him into the living pharaoh? Right. That's why okay. he was, that, yeah. Yeah. so he, you know, okay. Yeah. Now going back to this story here though, um, the first thing that, that really gets you is <coughs> the dynamic pieces of art. And this is just so unlike the rest of the comic books in the day, um, uh, except for, you know, the Avengers and the other books that, that Adams have worked on. Um, I'm, I'm not accustomed to, you know, like when I sit there and read, read comic books from this period, things are a lot stiffer. And so Adam's, you know, is injecting something that we're just not seeing anywhere. I love his um, curvy representation of the Sentinels. Mm-hmm. These are supposed to be giant mutant hunting robots, and yet they seem to bend in ways that robots shouldn't, mm-hmm. you know. But, uh, again, the, the other thing that they introduce in this – well, I don't know if they introduce it, but this is where it's really, really apparent – is those Sentinels are very stealthy. Because they seem to be able to sneak up on everybody. This is a twenty foot plus, you know, tall robot smashing buildings and stuff, and yet it sneaks on out, up on the beast and nice man. It sneaks up on Alex and them, and then mm-hmm. Cyclops and them. And it's just hilarious. It's like, where do these guys get all this stealth ability? We need to get that. <laughs> well, Adam seems to one the 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 splash page is great where it's it's breaking through the the wall and it's grabbing a beast with a, like a, a rope or a tendril or something. And Bobby's Doc, trying to, yeah, Bach, Doc Ock like, and Bobby's trying to ice up, but they're all such, even Bobby, who's just icing up. He's got this really contorted, uh, uh, position and beast is, is being yanked off the couch. And he does a, a lot of, uh, kind of coming at you almost 3d. Like he really tries mm-hmm. to, uh, it's very cinematic, you know, so it looks like he's, you know, maybe that's why he went into storyboards. And then the splash page is just, it's a two page splash and it's all angles. It's divided it's into amazing. these angles. Yeah. That's an amazing page or two pages. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, and for storytelling, I love how he's got the TV 
mm-hmm. uh, the interview with Trask and whoever's interviewing him on inter, it's interspace. So you're getting the fight and Trask uh, screaming and, and, you know, and mm. uh, uh, screaming, you know, t- talking about how the mutants are uh, a menace and how he's going to take care of them. So you kind of see what he's doing at the same time. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you, as far as Iceman's contortion goes, any parents of a teenage boy recognize certain contortions like that. You know, the surprise, oh, I got to get up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. Oh, I didn't take the trash out. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, Dad, don't walk in. <laughs> and I, I, I love the use of Zipatone. There's lots of Zipatone in this, especially yes. the TV, uh, over the TV uh, screen. Yeah, Yep. inserts and just on the, some of the shading for the Sentinels. He really uses it so effectively to create what the image that he's, or the... But that's, that's Palmer though, doing. isn't it? I mean, that's Palmer doing the, the Zipatone, isn't it? Or he that would, He would apply I would, it. I, I don't know if Adams would say, mm-hmm. hey, put Zipatone here, or maybe they talk about it. I don't know. How, I think we've talked about that. I don't know who makes that decision. Yeah, just the texture on the Sentinel to... This is, you know, where, where Byrne gets the idea that the Zipatone... Those type of textures is a Zepitone re- reference metal. Mm-hmm. And Bob Layton using it in other things is like, why is everything made of metal? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, golly. The next page, though, of course, has got that great uh, multi-panel layout, but it's uh, going diagonal down the page yeah. and long. Now, the benefit of these two pages, of course, is that you can follow the story and the dialogue in order. It's very, very easy. Not every page is as good with that. Sometimes you're struggling to figure out, okay, which is the next word balloon I'm supposed to read? Yeah, I will agree. And sometimes you'll read the wrong one and you realize, oh, no, i got to jump back. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's funny. The, 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 and I'm going to make another general statement about this book. Um, you can count probably on one, maybe both hands, out of all the panels in this entire book, how many of them actually have real backgrounds or others are just a varied color field. And I, I challenge anybody to compare this to a burn book and you'll see that burn actually puts more backgrounds, even on the books where people say he doesn't put backgrounds. <laughs> so Yeah, I didn't pick up on that. I mean, there, there are certainly what you go page five and six. I, I mean, it, this is very much the, 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 the art of the time before we started recording, I'd pulled out, um, I have a trade paperback, Nick Fury, agent of shield, which is a bunch of the, the Steranko stories, um, and find that the artwork in that also seems to have a lot of that, that same kind of sensibility, um, you know, from the day that there just wasn't as much background art put in that you would put in color with variants like this or, or use of Zipatone. Like on the second page where you see Iceman instead of a background, you got a, a Zipatone field that starts off dark and then gets lighter as it goes to the right side of the panel. And I just noticed the Sentinel's hand has got like a almost like a minigun or grenade launcher coming out of it where on the page before it was a single pipe that was coming out to, uh, you know, the show, shooting out that tentacle at the beast. Did you guys catch that? I can't tell if that's the gun. I thought that was the broken uh, cable that was coming out. It's just it looks so much smaller on the previous page. Yeah, it does. And maybe that is. Or, and, and they all have all their fingers have little round openings. It's where he blasts um, Iceman with like steam yeah. to convert him, you know, to melt the ice. Now, the um, the image, it's the third panel on page two. Doesn't the Sentinel look a lot more like Kang than the Sentinel? 
the shape of the head. Oh, and, and, and when he's, see, when he's yeah, breaking it, out of the ice. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. It's almost like a, um, a, an up angle, but it's it's just a weird camera angle. Yeah, I think it's the blue that's doing it. That yeah, that that blue, the blue that he's put on it, and lots of speed lines. Yeah, but these little TV picture images are also really, really good, almost realistic. And I'm wondering if he did some photo referencing there because they just look like a, a regular person rather than just penciled imagery. I well, mean, later he does. I think he has uh, an actual newscaster that's referenced. It's, uh, yeah, it's on page 13, and it's Chet. Is it, who was that, Chet? Um, who was a newscaster from the 60s, probably 70s, Chet? I don't recognize that name. The face is, you, if you look at the face, he's got an awful big forehead. But the face has got to be an actual person because it looks too much like an actual person. Well, he looks like the detective that showed up on Barney Miller from time to time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't remember his name, but that's yeah, I can't that's think the name, yeah. He played the General Ursa in the second Plan of the X movie. Oh, yeah. Now, um, the other thing I noticed, page three. And while it's got this great image of Iceman almost looking like the Silver Surfer coming on the center of the page, that's a very – I mean, to me, that's like a popular image because I think it was used in Ohatmu. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm gonna verify that for myself. Yeah. You'll see. I think that is <clears> – you're right because I've seen that image quite a bit. A lot. I, in fact, the fact of the matter is like when I was sitting there doing my reread of this, I was sitting there going, wait a second. Didn't burn – redo something like that in the Hulk annual. And I was looking through the Hulk annual trying to, to find it, but no, uh, nothing like that. So, um, but that page, I mean, again, you see the holes on the Sentinel's fingers, like you're talking about just before he hits him with the steam, mm -hmm. but the light layout of that page, you see, you know, multiple levels of action, but the central figure of him is stretching across multiple panels, which makes it like a full page splash. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a great way to, to show all this action, then you're getting all this information, this information dump from Trask on TV. And yet now it's interesting. I went back and I pulled up the Ohatmu and um, it's not that image. It's a reproduction of that image, like an homage that someone has done. Oh. But it is just the image of him himself and an ice thing. And you actually see like he's got a brace or support for the ice slide um, at one point. But it's it's definitely not the same image. It's just a, a reproduction. That's something they would it. they would do later. They would always feel they needed to draw because he would if he's doing this big ice slide. He would have to have some kind of supports underneath it as it goes. Yeah. Now is that did Bob Layton work on X Factor? He did. But he's first he's still he's couple. still in the same costume though. He's still in the same same costume he was there. So I don't know where that came from. But uh, yeah. It's a it's a duplication, I, and you know I'm my whole life's a lie. <laughs> That's just anybody know where that 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 uh, that copy of the image came from? Uh, let us know. We'd really like to like to hear on that. Maybe I'll do a, a little Facebook thing, but because uh, I I know people will say that it comes from this issue of the X Men, and then they're going to go, oh wait a minute. So we'll put it out for people to uh, to comment on. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And next page we get. <clears throat> You know, Hank escapes, then he attacks, then he gets captured again. And Bobby uses, uh, I guess, a trick he picked up from the Human Torch. He's created, like, ice avatars of himself, like three ice. I guess he can control them. Ice it's figures. Weird. Oh, yeah, okay, ice images, yeah. yeah. That's 
I mean, this is long before in the in the 90s they made Iceman out to be the most powerful mutant ever, not just control of ice, but control of water. Um, yes, I, I knew and, that with that the the White Queen when she possessed him, kind of unlocked yeah. ideas like you never thought about using your powers this way, and a, a lot of that came from also uh, uh, Age of X or Age of Ultron. Or Age of Apocalypse, right? I don't know. It was the alternate future where he was I much just, more powerful. I remember being told about it. I never actually read it. Yeah. I think he became, uh, physically became ice instead of just covering himself so that he could travel. He could travel through ice or if he was destroyed, he could reassemble himself. Yeah. Um, I really like to lay out a page five and you can actually follow it pretty well. Um, as Iceman's trying to get that satchel to throw to Beast. And Beast finally breaks away from the Sentinel, and Bobby's telling him to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next page is just a beautiful page, but it's hard to follow. Page six is very difficult to follow where you're supposed to read next. Um, but you figure it out. You know, you have to. Uh, the one thing I funny is, you know, it's like Hank sits there and talks about the fact that Bobby's the youngest of the X Men, where he's the oldest, and he doesn't feel like he should be, you know, the one running away. And, you know, again, you know, I'm sitting here and we got one podcaster with us, David, who is, what, 15 years younger than most of us. Yeah. <clears throat> and and we don't sit there and think of him as being a youngin or that young. And here Bobby is probably three, maybe, you know, two, maybe three years younger than Hank. And it's so important that he's the youngest that yeah. you, know, you have to sit there and make those considerations. It's just funny how the year span of years changes your perspective on such things well if we're ever in this situation i fully expect david to sacrifice himself so we can get away absolutely yes <laughs> wait wait he's the children so it's women and children first you gotta no. save him no, 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 gotta no. sacrifice ourselves no he needs we're to the hold- guys playing the violins as the titanic is sinking all right <laughs> we're letting everybody else get off first now, um, but at the bottom of this page where he's pulling off the mask, I've always loved this image, and I don't know why. But I find this actually makes me think of Days of Future Past because he stops hearing the sound of the fighting and realizes that Bobby's been taken. Yeah. And it makes me think of when Rachel is, is with Peter in her mind as he gets killed by the Sentinel. Right, yeah. Very effective and very... Yeah. Uh, it's it really is a moving way to tell the, the part of the story. Yeah. Well, I, mean, it's just I, don't, words too. I don't know if this is Adam's uh, commercial art um, uh, talent coming through, but he does a great job with facial expressions. You mm-hmm. can yes. see when Hank is putting his, you know, and what, you know, he's putting his glasses on. I don't know if that's part of his disguise or if he actually needs him to see. So it's like, why aren't you wearing him when you're the beast? But he's peeling his hood off and he's putting his glasses on so that he secret can, identity. Well, I know, but does he actually need to, or are those more like reading glasses? He doesn't need them when he's fighting. I don't know. But, you know, he puts on a pair of glasses and the Sentinel doesn't, you know, recognize him when he's walking away. He gets, well, he's taken off. He's blasted <laughs> off. You <laughs> I can know. See him, I and, you know he's, um, and then he's kind of, that, 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 that page seven where he's got that lonely walk away. Mm-hmm. I can't tell if he's on a roof. I guess he's on the roof, isn't he? You'll see it's him like he's there. Yeah, he's Chimney, walking away. TV um, antenna. That's a TV antenna. Yeah. Definitely on the roof. Yeah. And then we... Next panel, we get to see the worst costume in the X Men <laughs> with Angel in that that red, yellow, and blue monstrosity. It's a little. But doesn't doesn't Adams give him the the white and blue one that 
that he wears after that. Even uh, now, Byrne had it, but it was white and red. But I thought Adams had given him the new costume, and now I'm going to have to look at that. Mm. I don't remember. This but looks God. like, didn't he have a costume when he, didn't he retcon that he kind of was outing yeah. about his angel before he joined the X-Men, and then he had he had kind of a costume similar to this? Is that where he is known as the Avenging Angel? Because, the Avenging, you know, this is so. the first time yeah, I, I hear of it here, and I'm like, yeah. when was he known as the Avenging Angel? Yeah, I would have liked an editor's note there. Yeah. I know, but that's just me. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so he got the blue and white one in issue 62. Yep. That'd be Adam. Which yeah. is okay, awesome. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. We're getting that. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I love the imagery of Scott and Gene in plain clothes and, you know, Scott still, you can, you can tell it's Scott. You can tell it's Cyclops. There's no doubt that this is the X-Men's leader. What I think Adams like Byrne does a good job of drawing contemporary realistic looking clothing. Again, that's probably his commercial art background, but uh, I think actually at, and and for a, a while he's actually superior to Byrne in this, <laughs> in that his handling of draping, uh, especially like cuffs and stuff like that, are just amazing. Now that being said, uh, Byrne's capes always much more dynamic than Adams. And Adams did a number of Superman Superman covers and stuff, and he's never uh had the type of cape dynamic dynamic what do you want to say cape dynamics that uh burn created for say superman um not even had with a, had batman work i mean he did sweeping but he never i i i can't say that he did something so burn defined cape dynamics with with superman with man of steel and his later work on superman and oh, you're not you giving know, Todd McFarlane his credit with Spawn. Oh, no, no, no. I know where you're going with that. And that's like the ultimate cape foo. But that's magic cape foo. Well, that's that's a cape. That's a li- <clears throat> almost a living thing. And in Batman Year 3, he when he did Batman, he made the cape like so, so long. There's no way Batman didn't trip over it. But uh, no, I'll, I'll give Kurt, uh, I mean, Burn the... Um, the, the, the cape win, but as far as clothes draping and the realism of the uh, the physical clothes, um, no, I go I, I go to Adams on that. It took Burn a couple of years before uh, a number of years before he had everything nailed down. Where Adams seemed to have it much earlier on, much earlier well, it, on it, in this. It group. depends. I've always thought you could define Marvel and DC based on capes because if you think about it, Marvel characters there are not a lot of capes in the Marvel universe. Right. DC is full of them. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's just a, a just a thing, but I do love this on page eight where you see the angel flying right at you, where he's breaking out of his yeah. panel, where he's calling himself the Avenger Angel because he's going to fly, you know, he's going to try to fly transatlantic. Uh, that's just a great shot. I mean, that's just stuff you were not getting with, you know, as dynamic as Kirby was, and he was doing some crazy, really powerful images. He didn't kind of do this kind of stuff. Yeah. And... And the way his hand just goes over Trask's head, yeah, to cover while he's talking on the phone, yeah. that's that's awesome. Well, that to set that up, you think, okay, here's uh, Chalmers is talking to Trask, and Trask is talking about, oh, don't worry about, it. I've got you know this mutant, and the the, the the layout of it's a close up of his face, and he's looking over at the this containment 
thing. It's got Bobby in it where he's giving him the uh, the steam treatment. Yeah. It's just a, a different layout. You would not see that. Again, I think that's his advertising background coming in. That all of these almost act look like ads for stuff instead of just. But he he does a great job of telling the story. Yes, yeah. That's um, some really good elements that he that he puts into this. And like you like you guys have said, I love the facial expressions. So much of it tells the story right there. Well, yeah, especially with Trask, you you see his anger, his mania. You know, <laughs> mania. Here. That's a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, is that he has fallen for the. Well, I say fallen for, but I mean, he is a victim of you know the 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 groupthink mentality. Being you know, basically point everybody to someone and say they're the foe, they're the enemy, mm-hmm. and because of you know, his father dying, you know, due to his work against the mutants, he's doubled down. He's bought in and, and he's got a, a level of anger beyond what the average person might have. I and mean, the average person might have fear for mutants, but it's not as much hatred as you would see in someone like Trask. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of mania that uh, drives to a scary level. And we see it. Um, he has a moment of clarity, a moment of lucidity before he's ultimately screwed. <laughs> but, well, and that, that's kind of a common uh, storytelling trope of the, the obsessed person that at the end finally sees uh, the full story or, or comes to realize that, no, wait a minute, I, I've been blinded to what I to, to what I was feeling. So, you know, he, he, he he's he's doing that black and white correlation of my father's dead. The X-Men were involved. They've got to be responsible. So that's all he sees. That's why he's yep. so obsessed with creating these uh, these Sentinels. And, of course, the, the big irony is that you know, he's a mutant himself, um, which is a little bit like at the end of the X-Men graphic novel um, that God loves, mm-hmm. man destroys. Man kills. God, God loves, man kills. God yep. kills. Where when he turns on his mutant destroying machine, uh, one of one of his assistants or something or his daughter, somebody is affected by daughter. it. Yeah, as if yeah. his daughter's affected by it. He's like, wait a minute, you know. So, so um, you know that Adams the cool was supposed to about, do that. Uh, <laughs> and I so, think Adams actually did some art for God Loves Man Kills, and then couldn't do it, and that's why they brought in Brandon Anderson, who's yeah. very good at doing Neil Adams style. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. I was going to say that the the, the two page sequence that we had with the TV going through that was also an element used in that graphic novel. Yes. yes. At one point. Yes. So that was really neat. Okay. Somebody, so go ahead. Okay, well, I was going to say on page nine where we get a little more exposition, we get that great bottom panel where Trask is pointing. Uh, they point mm-hmm. out on around comics that that the Adams was known for like putting fingers in the reader's face. He was always having somebody because they said, "Who draws? Yeah. You know, who draws hands better than Neil Adams?" You know, he's always got somebody. He's kind of like the Gil Kane up the nose shot. It's like he's, you know, and you do see that a lot here. Somebody's pointing. He's, you know, he's very expressive with his finger with the hands. Same yeah. on the previous page with Angel. That first panel where Angel's standing there and he's just like, "I'm gonna do it." Yeah, and you you can just even see the tension in his face and with his fists, his hands there. Uh, excellent work just amazing uh and then when he's flying off uh in that fourth panel you can see that in his in his work as well it's mm-hmm. really fantastic work 
Hands are hard to, speaking as somebody who does graphic design, hands are hard to do, to get them right. They are very hard. My son's struggling with hands right now, drawing them, that is. Uh, (laughs) The one thing I'm going to say, and this may, you know, you guys might call it blasphemy, I don't know, is that I don't find his tech as dynamic as, say, Kirby's or Burns uh, and other guys. His tech has always been there but it's always seemed like he drew as little of it as he needed to. Whereas like Kirby and Byrne and, and Perez would just fill up an area with their tech that would almost be a character unto itself, you know? Yeah. I, th- I think he's more about the figure. I'll give you that. I think for Kirby, for its, its inventiveness and out and kind of outlandishness, nobody's mm-hmm. better than Byrne has a sleek, clean design. Uh, I put Bob Layton up there too. Bob Layton does pretty good tech. Um, yes, definitely better than people. Yeah, but uh, that's why I think he was perfect for Iron Man. But yeah, I, for tech wise, yeah, Burn. I think Burn has got it for a for more of a a uh, uh, conservative design because Kirby just filled it up with you know with as many switches and gears and and things as you could you know at least. Yeah. And I think Burn tried to think about what logically it would look like. There's an ergonomics to what he's doing, so. Yeah. Yeah. And in and, and here in, in page nine, you know, at the top, he's got that one panel that's got all the tech and stuff in it where he's got the chamber where he's keeping Iceman and the steam bath. And I'm looking at it and like I can see there's like a, a checked board. It's almost it looks like a checkerboard or a crossword puzzle. You know, now the rest of it that's in there, like there's the mechanical arm thing. I think that's like the mechanical arm. I'm not sure. And and other other things in there, but none of it seems to really have great function other than the tube that keeps Iceman steamy. Yeah. Well, even his sentinels are not as good as Burns, and I'm thinking more about him when he would do his Doombots. He did a great job of. Uh, these are drawn more like people, so they kind of seem like they're a little bit of them fluctuates a little bit, like a human body would. Yeah, but Burns drew robots as. How Kirby his Sentinels are, yeah, yeah. Even Kirby's Sentinels were not, are as good as I think Burn does that type of robotic look. Probably just about there. Anybody, maybe maybe Layton's pretty good at that too. But Bob McCloud did a great job when he when he touched them on the like a New Mutants. Yeah, is that Bob McCloud of the Clan McCloud? That's right. <laughs> there could be only one. <laughs> There's one among them called Connor. No, uh, he's trying anyway, to cutting uh, off other artists' heads. Next page, of course, is where we get introduced to Havoc and his uh, new costume. Yep. And his face reminds me, like in the third panel, reminds me of the way Eric Larson would draw Spider-Man. You know, if you just change that out for uh, white over Alex's eyes, it reminded me of Eric Larson. Yeah. But uh, and then the bottom panel where Iceman is like all over Lorna. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It looks like she's laying on a bed of Spider-Man's webs. Because of the zipatone that they use there, same kind they use for like Spider-Man's web balls, or you know the the where he would pack up his clothes and everything. Mm-hmm. And cross yeah, same. Well, I guess I I had to, I did not remember because I always thought of Alex and Lorna's being together. That I guess early on Bobby kind of yeah, had a thing for. Her. Well, yeah, I mean, Bobby introduced uh, Lorna to the group because Bobby was all about Lorna, and uh, they, yeah. they thought the, when they you know they realized she was a mutant because she had green hair, and never thought that maybe she could have died. But no, no, it was natural. 
And they immediately thought, oh, she's Magneto's daughter, you know. And Magneto comes out and says, yeah, she's my daughter. No, nope, not really. Wow, that's... But yeah, and Iceman was just obsessed with her um, all throughout all that. And then, of course, she uh, she and Alex. She fell for Alex. Yeah. I mean, Iceman just, he never has luck with the ladies. And, well, we know what they did, you know, later on with him. And I'm going to call that a retcon. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. Well, but, I, th- uh, I think but Alex. But get to see Alex's costume and then uh, in the bottom how he's going to finally, you know, how it gets into use, which is really cool. Yes, and I've always loved that that scene. That one get has gotten uh, some reproduction. And again, I'm going to go back to a hotler to see if they did the that same is, one. That's they... from yeah, that's from because I'd always thought that was a cool way of of showing his um, his power generating. And and it would have been nice if we could have seen this costume on screen, not that yellow and black thing they did in. Yeah, uh, first class. First class, but if you had just black leotard and and they could digitally just have that center ring just kind of pulsating, you know, and then as he powers up, you know, because the only thing I find really wrong is on page 11, when you've kind of got, he's got his, at the lower panel on the left, he's kind of crouched, you, you see his back. Mm-hmm. I would think you wouldn't see that ring, but he's drawn it in kind of on his back or his middle. Um, oh, right, yeah. And we, we've never really I, talked about why would Trask do this? If he's wanting to get rid of mutants, why would he, unless he did this to, does he plan on using Havoc? I mean, he's giving him a costume. He's giving him a name in exchange for saving, you know, sparing Lorna. That's why Alex did it. But why, what's Trask in game? Why does he want to, does he want to use Havoc well, for he, something? He, well, kind of like, call, oh, go ahead. I, go I ahead. think it's, there's no rhyme or reason that, people of this megalomania i mean look at the nazis i mean yeah they said they hated jews but they used them for all sorts of purposes even sex and uh they also used it to to prove their cause i mean if if, so you keep a bunch of these mutants just to show how dangerous they are just like he he said earlier he's like oh i just broadcast how you attacked me even without sound or everything but you know it's there's ways so that he uses uh, those types of people use that just to prove their point to keep the other uh, followers. Oh yeah, that's right. They are terrible. Or look at these mutants or, you know, whatever. So yeah, I I think that's why he's doing it is he's keeping them as an example. And I I wish I was just more clear. That's, that's a good point, John. If he was going to use havoc as look, these guys are dangerous. Look, this guy can't control his powers. He needs to be put down. I just didn't think, uh, I mean, it, it, of course, Alex would grasp at anything because he can't control his powers. So if he says, hey, here's a suit that'll kind of, you know, or in this case, it says it tells him when to calm down. It's like a, it's like a, a mood suit, it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, you know, that you point out something really interesting in that in that panel on the bottom, page 11, where you see Alex from the backside and yet you're seeing the the level of power. So it basically says that no matter where you are in relation to him, when you're looking at him. You're seeing that it, yeah. it's it, and golly, I, I wonder if if they took a picture of him, what the picture would relay. Would you see anything at all, or would he just be in all black? Because uh, obviously, it's a it's a perception thing. Yeah, that's 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 a, really an interesting concept. And uh, I mean, it, you know, like burned with his um, double talk body aura for Superman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, this right here is is a, a really ingenious concept. 
But also this whole page is just genius. The, the top panel where you see Havoc standing there and you can see the full body pose, you know, because of the costume and everything. And it's such a real, real pose of a person in that situation. I, I just I, I can see someone standing like that. And then Bobby's anger and calling him a coward, uh, the expression on his face and Lorna, of course, yeah. coming to Havoc's aid. And what? then the stealth sentinel number two. I think that's what maybe brings Alex and Lord together because they were kind of both introduced with these last couple of issues. That, oh, guess what? You're a mutant. So they're like, oh, they haven't been trained. They don't really know how to use their powers. So they're kind of get drawn to each other because they feel that connection that we're mutants, but we don't really want to be superheroes because he says, he says, you could have fought. He says, no, fighting's your hang up, Drake, not mine. You know, he doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to follow in his brother's footsteps. Yeah. Um, Plus, I think here, Lorna, of course, Lorna is probably five or six years older than Bobby, but yeah. uh, she also sees what a jerk he is. <laughs> yeah, he's not helping his cause. If he ever had a chance, it's gone now. <laughs> jerk. Hmm. And then switch over to Page. Wow. Yeah, I love that panel. Wouldn't it be cool if it was bigger? I mean, that is an amazing panel. <clears throat> yeah, I love Trask uh, surprise. Now he's calling it a Neo Sentinel number nine, number nine, <laughs> number nine, um, wrecked by uh, wrecked by a mutant. And now he seems to sh- shoot some sort of laser at Havoc's uh, the scarab or charm that's on the uh, top of Alex's costume there on top of his skull. Did he have to be like perfect aim to get that? Or was it like, uh, is it like Bluetooth or it's like line of sight. It's probably like a TV remote. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Click. Oh, he's doing, which explains that always sense of what what it is. He's holding there. I always wonder why Havoc because before I'd read this and I'd seen Havoc when I was reading X-Men, I was wondering why he had a little jewel on his Mm -hmm. costume. Apparently that's just so that Trask can kind of shut him down. But I bet you, like, Beast may have tried to remove it and said, you know, I can't remove it without ruining the costume's properties, which yeah. Alex needs. Probably is. And maybe that's where the control. Um, and is it, it, but, well, I'll just say it's kind of cool how he <clears throat> I've always I've always liked the connection, not not counting the Mr. Sinister interference, but the why these two uh, mutants are somehow connected that. They both, I mean, there's got to be, to your point, Brian, there's got to be other mutants that absorb cosmic rays or cosmic energy that, you know, it's just these two guys are linked together. Well, I mean, they're like on the 6G band. So yeah. <laughs> not, not many people have moved up to that one just yet. They got there early. So, you know. I think you guys are putting too much thought into that concept. <laughs> it's just, it's well, comics. I'm sure that a writer has come on since then and explored that. I can't see why they wouldn't. Yeah. Because then obviously like, like in this page here, he disables Alex's ability to absorb the cosmic rays and he's putting on that big head gear while he's laughing maniacally. Mm -hmm. Living models. Did you say the living (laughs) model? Like it was the greatest joke you'd ever heard. I know that's, that's, it's like a Joker laugh there. Yeah, it is. He's channeling the Joker right there. And, and then the like, next page, of course, is the uh, the news guy. And, Chet and Brinkley. See the, That's Chet the name Brinkley. I'm thinking. Chet Brinkley. So it's David Brinkley that they're talking about. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Island at Top of the World, starring David Brinkley. Yep. Do you remember that movie? Uh, but yeah, you see the boardroom where, and I don't, I don't remember this guy's name. Professor Abdul. Abdul. Yeah, Abdul. Ahmed Abdul, I think. 
on the yeah. I just looked up the picture of David Brinkley. That's David Brinkley. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But is it the same one I'm thinking of from Island to the Top of the World? No, that's a different. Not. You're thinking of a, yeah, that's a different actor, I think. No, David Brinkley was a newscaster in the yeah. 60s. So. Yeah, he's kind of the Walter Cronkite type school, like uh, that yeah. age and era. So, yeah, great scene here. I always love the way Adams makes people transform. Like uh, for when Professor um, Abdul is starting his transformation, it's just so cool to watch. You just feel the power of it as it's going. Just those three panels is just so cool. And then <laughs> I love how the Sentinels show up and just shoot shoot that asbestos goo or whatever, you know, the cosmic blocking goo all over him. And he's like, foiled. <laughs> Shrinking, shrinking. I guess they're not worried about him being able to breathe. But <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of David Hartman. David Hartman was the star That's, of uh, yeah. Island Top of the World, and while he was an actor, he was a a presenter on many factual shows and stuff. He was on Good Morning America as a, as the anchor. Uh, yeah. So he basically, you know, did give us the news uh, for for uh, like <coughs> 30, 40 years. So yeah, that's who I was thinking of. He's still around. Mm -hmm. mid-80s anyway sorry anyway so, now we're back to the next page to angel trying to make a transatlantic flight like dude seriously <laughs> you are crazy yeah that that is coming I mean, in as far as he's traveled because he is so close to new york um at this point and he's following that north atlantic uh transit route the nat route that they call it they started in i guess like 1965 uh, is the reason why you see him here. He gets captured, and it, it seems like a coincidence, but Cyclops and Gene can see him being captured from their plane. But it makes perfect sense because he can go maybe, what, 180 miles an hour at his fastest, and they're in a regular jet plane that started you know, a couple hours later, and they actually caught up to him. So he should have just stayed in the plane. Mm -hmm. but, <clears throat> yeah, I think it was, he was being hot-headed and... In, in Impulsive. Yes. And well, it's like when you're stuck in traffic and you know you can go, well, if I go this way here, it's five miles out of my way, but I'll actually be moving. I'll get there later, but I'll <coughs> actually be moving. moving. Part, right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Just you want to keep, keep moving. moving. And uh, so, yeah, there's that. Because they were right outside JFK Airport. You know, they were circling around. So they've been there a little bit um, and their plane had been taking circling. So they actually were ahead of Angel even though he started way before them. And then, of course, you see uh, a, a, another Sentinel, number seven, going after Mesmero and mm -hmm. not Magneto. Now, I didn't read any of the earlier stories. Um, I mean, I, I, I skimmed them, but I didn't read them, so I don't recall their, their uh, matching up, and I'm pretty sure that Mesmero was part of his plan with plot, the plot with Lorna. But if that's that was the case, back in the Savage Land. Um, but, but was that really Magneto? Was that the, the robot here, or was that with Magne the actual Magneto? Well, he says that the Magneto I've been following all these months has been a robot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so back then it was that one, too. So that that's one of the things that we're like, oh, so that was claimed that Lorna's daughter was false. Although, you know, I still thought it was cool if Lorna was Magneto's daughter. But did, did Magneto make that robot, or did somebody else make that robot? Was it the machine smith, you know? I'm sure I it's one of Magneto's. Duplicates. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It was probably Magneto, but don't know then. <laughs> it was crazy. It was a crazy time. 
it's kind of like Byrne retconning the visit of Doctor Doom to the X Men as being a Doom bot. It's like, yeah. okay, whatever. And, and then Mesmero or Mesmero comes off as a real lackey here. I mean, he's a real yeah. whiner, kind of like a toad. A toad, yeah. But he'll be back. You will be back yeah. soon. You'll see. Uh, yep, easily caught, and now we're back at Trask's uh, lair, which later becomes the X Men's lair in X Men Elseworlds. Yep, mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice yes. uh, connection. Yeah. Now, of course, Judge Chalmers has arrived. Um, you know, he he actually was flown on an autoplane. He did not pilot that. The plane piloted itself. Interesting. That you know he'd go along with that. You know, even back then. This is 1969, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Dang. Okay. But, uh, yeah, he, of course, it looks at this, the situation here and is like, is this really humane? And then this is where you see Trask's mania and, uh, you get his origin story, mm-hmm. uh, after, after you see him eavesdropping on the X-Men. And where does he get the cameras that, that actually see them doing all this? He makes it out like he's got like, uh, some cameras that can see things very, very far away. Cameras as well as, all over as, the, uh, a sonic probe, which, well, yeah, so he's got cameras all over the place. And, yeah. and this, this scene where Cyclops is changing from his glasses to his visor is very, uh, it makes me think of Burns' work in Elson. In fact, I think we spoke about it when we were talking about that issue in Elson that made us think of this. Mm-hmm. But the bottom image where you're seeing the flashback of Trask's father, Oliver Trask, talking to him about, you know, never taking the, the thing off. And he says, I swear, Papa. That makes me think of Daredevil, where his father says, I want you to be something, be a lawyer, be a doctor, use your brain, not not your fist like an old bug like me. <laughs> I swear, Pa, I promise, Papa. But I apparently, think that's a common trope. Apparently this medallion not only blocks his mutant power, which is precognition, but it also mm-hmm. erases his memory. So uh, it's apparently from, and again, it's probably retconned. He has a sister who was also mutant who could time travel. Mm. And she just up and disappeared, I guess, when her power kicked in, she just disappeared. Mm. And then she later comes in, I guess, later in the X-Men because she deals with, she knows Rachel Summers. But, okay, interesting. Yeah, it's it's funny how they go back and mine uh, all yeah. these stories to, to kind of fill in all fill in all little gaps. Yeah. Or to create, yeah. Interesting. But look, let's look on the next page, and, and I'll tell you, like, this was my first um, real um experience with Banshee because when I started reading the X-Men, he was no longer part of the team because um, I started reading him at issue 132. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting there looking at, you know, Banshee on the top of page, was it 19? Is it 19? Yes, 19. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and he's got, he looks like a really, really old man or like <laughs> Sal Basima drew somebody really angry. Well, initially um, he was an older character. He'd been part of the Interpol and all of these other things, so, and, and as a you know from Ireland. So I thanks think he, be praised. Yeah, so I, I think <laughs> uh, sirens, originally sirens he was praised. probably in his late thirties, mid to yeah. late thirties when he was introduced. But I think they kind of de-aged him as they started thinking, ah, we could use this character. Let's bring him more into line with some of the others, so he's not quite the, the old man. So I, I know that when he was part of all new, all different, he seemed to be older uh, than, than most of them. And of course, when uh, in the, the second Cockrum era, when they brought him back, he had I mean, he had a very Sean Connery, never say never again vibe going with him. 
Yeah. Uh, during during that whole thing, so you, you you get the idea that he was in his forties or fifties. But again, here he looks old just because of the way when he's using his power, what it does with him, it, it works. Yeah, everything. I think when he first was introduced, they were drawing that way with lots of kind of speed lines. Um, yeah, which would kind of distort the way he looked. But uh, yeah, but that and, bottom panel nineteen is like there's so much texture and depth to that to that that image. Mm-hmm. Well, and this, I, I think this is the uh, the synopsis I read is wrong because I've read two two versions of this story where he's you know Trask is basically telling Sentinels to destroy all the mutants, not just capture but to, to kill them, and the judge is trying to stop him. Well, the next page he punches him and he's got the medallion, uh, and and the synopsis says that he punches him and the medallion falls off, yeah. but. When this, the scene where he's picking up and says, I'm sorry, I don't want to, um, he says, and then Trask says, I was, I was wrong to order the mutants to kill. And he says, then you still don't understand my true purpose. I've read that the judge knew that he was a mutant and knew about the amulet and well, yeah, took it off the, on purpose. Yeah, the necklace is fully intact. Yeah. The chain isn't broken. Right, and he's got it in his it hand. Off, it's not falling off. He said, well, he's taking it off. He didn't actually knock it off. He wanted to reveal that he was a mutant i guess not i guess he him thinking well i'll take this off the, the sentinels will kill him and that'll stop all this but apparently every time he puts it on it'll block his powers and then erase his memory so if you put it back on right now he would not know he was a mutant i do like that expression on his face after he gets punched yeah it's, it's like a what have i done kind of yeah thing. that's the, that's yeah that's his his and apparently at the uh he there's kind of a sequel to this in Avengers 104, where he is a t- the Sentinels uh, at the end of the, you know with the next story, the Sentinels you know not worth spawning it, but Cyclops basically does a Kirk on him and talks him into flying into the sun, which is a source of all mutations. So they go, oh, we're going to destroy the sun. Um, so they take off. Well, at one point they didn't. One of them mutates uh number two number two sentinel actually gets so close to the sun he mutates and becomes a mutant and develops teleportation powers brings all the sentinels back and they attack the avengers and the and wanda and vision and trask is then kind of a hero because he tries to stop them with the avengers and another base he had in australia and he gets killed in that one because they shut down the he reveals that the one mutant or one sentinel is a mutant the other mutants, the other sentinels turn on him, destroy him, and that destroys all of them. And then they collapse and fall on top of Trask and kill him. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of his, that's his end. He, he shows up in these three stories and then he gets killed off in two more in the Avengers. Yeah. But of course, I mean, the one thing that's obvious is the art is just, you know, awesomely superior to so much of what came out in the day. And still today, it's beautiful. It's relevant. You can. You know, this is a book you could pull up and show to anybody and say, "This is a reason why you should read comics." Yep. And it was so different too. Like I said, it must be in whoever picked this up and go, "Wow, what am I seeing here?" Um, You're right. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. And, and, uh, okay. And another thing. I'm sorry. Another thing I find interesting and it's outside the story and all that. Is um, this the, the the one I'm reading here has all the ads in it, even though it's a digital a digital copy. And so I'm looking at the ads, and the ads are so different from the ones that we see later. Like there's the the inside cover 
is a um, Mr. America, Mr. Universe secret muscle building tools. And it's multiple ads for all these things that you can buy to build up, a, you know, a, a Charles Atlas kind of body. Um, I, want and, the, uh, I want the Polaris nuclear sub for only <laughs> oh, yeah. 698 Seven yeah, that, feet long, um, they get it for two kids. Cardboard, isn't it? I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was cardboard, but but it has hours and hours of adventure. Yeah, another ad there for grit, and oh hey, here's one for Kurt. They got an ad for Estes rockets. Oh and, yeah, uh, I'm looking for that. So oh, yeah, there's the polar, and then the guy. Oh, that will make you Wallace Rimmon will make you a master of karate, or is that karate? It's the secret Oriental art secret. Secret to who? Even in the late 60s, it wasn't a secret. Mm-hmm. And you can get a giant lifelike karate practice dummy for only 99 cents. But Brian, you're, <clears throat> you passed up the uh, the, uh, the fake mustache and goatee or Van Dyke you can buy that uh, enjoy an exciting, romantic, impressive look anytime. Have oh, a look yeah. men envy <laughs> and women admire whenever you go. So it's Van Dyke's for $3.00. Mustache is two dollars. Sideburns are three dollars. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy! Right above the grit ad. Yeah, that is. That's fun stuff. Now the um, there's another uh, full page of Marvel of the subscription ad. It's brand new Marvel swinging inflatable plastic pillow. Introduce the latest, most original Marvel merchandising masterpiece ever: three dimensional superhero plastic pillows that can hold more weight than you can shake a four bush at. You can bang them, toss them, even let them hang loose on the wall. Either Spider-Man or Thor, in full color yet, for a buck fifty plus fifteen cents for postage and handling. Did you I guys never, ever send send money off? Just send money off for something, like out of a comic? Yeah, like a, like a comic ad or an ad in a cereal box. Or I remember when I was a kid, I. I saw an ad in a cereal box for a little plastic truck that the lights would light up. And for some reason that just, you know, mm-hmm. four year old me was like, that's cool. <laughs> and so I actually put money in an envelope and sent it. Yes, I could read and write when I was younger. The only thing I've ever I sent off for, and I still have them. I've never used them. I have a set of Star Trek, the motion pictures, iron ons that I got from Cheerios and, I also sent off for, I think I got it from the back of all of the Transformers when I was collecting those. You could send off and get the camera perceptor as a mail away. Okay, I'm looking at the letters page now trying to see if there's anybody here. Um, Niles Osmar wrote in. Uh, Jerry Swinkover, and he actually published everybody's address. Yeah, I think he used to do back that. In, back in that day. Um, the 70s, I think they did. Mm-hmm. Bruce Smith from Jamaica, New York. And then at the very bottom of the page, there's a thing that says here, Know ye these, the hollowed ranks of Marveldom. RFO, real frantic one, a buyer of at least three Marvel mags a month. TTB, titanic true believer, a a divinely inspired no-prize winner. QNS, quite enough sayer, a fortunate frantic one who's had a letter printed. Hey, Paul Spataco falls in that category. Excuse me. Spataro. Just kidding. Um, KOF, Keeper of the Flame, one who recruits a newcomer to Marvel's rollicking ranks. PMM, Permanent Marvelite Maximus, anyone possessing all four of the other titles. <laughs> oh, man. 
Uh, let's see, FFF, Fearless Front Facer, an honorary title bestowed for devotion to Marvel's above and beyond the Call of Duty. I wonder if they did that every month for a while there or what. I'm going to have to look at the other books and see. And then uh, they've got one of those pages where it asks if you have art talent worth developing. Take art, retest, and see. Was that draw, yeah, draw the dog. Mm-hmm. But it's not like what, what, what we're familiar with. It's a different different one, full pose. Yeah. You, so you don't have all those in yours? Yeah, you do because yeah. you just yeah, saw the sub ad. So, yeah, uh, it's, it it's It looks like it's inside the back. Well, not inside the back cover, the back page. Very back page. Because the yeah. very back is it that fishing ad that I've seen in every comic book I can think of growing up. Is that Zebco or no? Nyrisk discount sales. What's the brand name of the? Do they have a brand name for any of the? Doesn't Rob Reynolds. Star Drag. What the heck is Star Drag? You get three. You get three rods and you get a tackle box full of stuff. Crafty lures selected from the world's most popular all-time favorites. Okay, well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. And what? then the last one is where you can finish high school at home. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, some like people don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. We didn't uh, we bring it up, but I was reading um, about the items on his wiki page. Apparently this year, and I don't know if it was for this work or previous work, but he won, I think for his Dead Men, he won like he won a bunch of awards this year. Him and um, I think Roy Thomas won Best Writer. He won Best Artist. He won best cover for I think his Dead Men run or one of his Dead Men things. So he, you know, and he's been invited into uh, both Hall of Fames. There's a there's a uh, Joe Sinnott Hall of Fame. What are the two Hall of Fames from comic? It's, um, Will Eisner. They have a Hall of Fame. I think he's in you that. Know, I'm trying to see what they are. I've never paid attention to the comic book Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I haven't either. But you know, he he seems like he would have been a, a shoe in. I would have figured he would have been in a long time ago. Sometimes those aren't the ones they, they uh, cause it wasn't Bernie Claremont entered into it a couple years ago. Comic book hall of fame, Lexington, Ohio. But there's also when I, when I pull it up, the first thing that comes up is the Eisner awards. Yeah. So, um, hard to say. I have to, I'll have to look into this, um, further, but you're saying that Neil Adams got, um, the most recent award. Was it lifetime? Award or he won. Um, I have it right here. Uh, he was in 2019, he was introduced into the Inkwell Awards, Joe Sinnott Hall of Fame. Uh, in 99, he was introduced into the Eisner Awards, Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame, and the Harvey Awards, Jack Kirby Hall of Fame. Mm. But, um, he in 67, he won uh, Alley, the Alley Award for Best Cover for uh, I think Dead Man. Uh, he won for Brave and a Bold, Dead Man Team Up. Uh, with Bob Haney, they won best full-length story, and in '69 he won best pencil uh, best uh, pencil artist, featuring um, featured the Dead Mirrors Elected Award Hall of Fame, and Adam received a special award for the new perspective and dynamic vibrance he brought to the field of comic art. And that he did. Yep. He was a great artist, and I think a lot of the artists today owe uh, a lot of their inspiration and design choices uh, to impart to Neil Adams and to others. Uh, but, you know, Neil was a great uh, mover and, and he changed the way that, or he helped to change the way. I'm not saying he's the only one, but, you know, he was a big influence on how comics m- migrated from 
what they were in the 50s and 60s to into the 70s and 80s and then eventually on into today i mean as artists were influenced and inspired and they picked up those types of things i think a lot of artists probably don't even realize uh, or may not realize why they do things because they've just seen it all their lives and so they're just like oh i'm just doing this well a lot of these these things were um the changes that we talked about that uh, neil and and others uh managed to uh, to incorporate and do so um yeah i mean really great stuff well yeah to your point john i think some um you you if you grow up loving comics and you get into it you just absorb that and you don't subconsciously you probably don't know that you're being influenced by all these greats that have come before you um and Brian, you had kind of, before we started recording, you had brought up, and I've only met Neil Adams once, and that was at Dallas, and I briefly, just when I, I picked up a copy of his Superman versus Ali, and he signed it for me. But from just hearing him talk to other people at the booth, he seemed like a genuinely nice guy. Um, I know you said you seemed to think he had a little, he might be a little more, uh, I think that, that himself, probably, but. well, yeah, there, there was, there was talk this full so I again I'm not gonna I, I I can't let myself buy into that because if I buy into that I buy into the big bad born burden stories you know um the one thing that, that we do know about Neil though is that he was definitely a man who was concerned with making money and if you wanted an autograph if you wanted you know something you know from Neil you're gonna have to pay to get it and that's different from you know what we've seen from Byrne, where he is was always gracious in, in signing autographs, and he signed plenty for us. And when he was here just a, about two years ago, or however long that was, um, but yeah, I mean, but the thing is, regardless of whether he's full of himself, the guy's earned it. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, he is everything that we say he is, and you know, he was this huge force. You, you can't begrudge that. It's like I don't begrudge any of the things that 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 Byrne has done over the years. Um, you know, I, I I just have to sit there and, and say, you know, it's part and parcel of the man, and you know, you go on. But the thing is, is that you know, now when you say the Neil Adams, there's always going to be that little bit of reverence, and um, you know, there's other people that we that we would do that with, and obviously, you know, uh, the passage of George Perez, you're thinking about that as well. Uh, but we'll discuss him uh, more later. But, uh, you know, all in all, you know, he's just one of the greats. Um, and I still have, you know, again, I haven't read everything that he's done. Um, I'm trying to frame how I want to read him. If I want to read it from the floppies, if I want to buy um, the the more uh, recent digital um, reprints of his work, because I think that um, – you know, they're not going to look as they were presented originally. It would be better to be able to read the, the, the floppies as they were, but unfortunately priced out of many, many of those. Oh, yeah. and, and and so, you know, reading his stuff is – I've got digitally, you know, all, all the world's finest work that he did, all the Batman work he did. Uh, most of his Superman work was really left to covers. Now, I do have Reign of the Superman – and I need to pick up uh, was it Batman Odyssey, which was one of the was like the best last Batman work he did, and that was within the last last few years. I, th- um, I think there are some omnibus out there. I was looking into that yesterday when I was reading this. That if there are any Neil Adams omnibus, uh, kind of like he did with Burn, and I think there's like a Dead Man collection. There's yeah, 
probably the the Green Arrow, uh, Green Lantern. Uh, I've got that in my uh, essentials or my showcase. But uh, it, it what's great about what good comics should do is make you want to read more good comics. So by reading mm-hmm. this, I'm like, oh, I need to look. I need to find these Batman mm-hmm. stories that he's done that I have not read. Um, last, last week we were at a they had a little car show at Boulder, so we went up there to kind of walk around. And somebody had a table of comics and they were all just three bucks, three bucks a piece. So I was like, oh, okay. So I'd start digging through all this stuff. And they had some pretty good stuff in there. I I missed out on a lot of Ghost Rider because somebody got there ahead of me. I filled in a lot of defenders, but there was a, a, a little girl there that was, had gone through it with her mother and she picked out a couple books and the guy's like, okay, well, how many do you have? And count them up and I'll tell you. And the mother was like, okay, it's going to be. I don't know how much money it was. And the little girl was like kind of half apologizing for having picked out these books. And she's like, she goes, I'm, I'm sorry. I just like comics. And I was next to him digging through the box. And I turned to her and I said, never apologize for liking comics. No, don't be ashamed of that. If you like them, good stories are good stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, Neil and a lot of the contemporaries there were at the cusp of bringing comics out of the funny books you rolled up for a couple of months in the back of your pocket to something that were actually telling interesting stories on the level. Some of them, not all, but some like some of these, you know, near the level of like Ray Bradbury type stuff. You know, people are going to probably mock me for that. But I think some of these stories were actually really good sci-fi stories. And uh when you follow them through, there's some really good stuff that could be done, uh, mined out of those. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think, I think, uh, a, a good story is a good story. It doesn't have to necessarily be, you know, it's written at a level that, uh, a, a small kid could understand it and appreciate it, but also, you know, college age kids, this is when I think college age kids will kind of, uh, I think that's a, the later, the later era of the silver age when college, the college kids were really getting into Marvel and stuff. And I think maybe, I don't, I don't want to, Talk because I don't know as much about DC, but I'll, DC was a little slower to change to upgrade their their mm-hmm. uh, their stories the way Marvel did. Um, but certainly the '70s was when the comics code got lifted and they could do a lot more uh, a lot more types of stories. But uh, you know, this this is just a good. Uh, I need to go and read the, the follow up to this to find out what happens. But it's just it's a good story with great art. I think it, it kind of sets simple. All right, guys. Well, I think we've. Unless you have any final notes, I no, think I we've think covered it. We've covered it. We're we're going to leave our email for later because we have a lengthy one from Nigel. But uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I just kind of wanted to get on and, and you know, he, me, you know, Adams had passed, and we needed, you know, obviously we don't cover his work, but I think great artists, you know, deserve at least one good one show to to talk about it. And you know, we're, we're so I thought we would talk about this one. I thought it was a good story to dive into and then you know we do have more um you're kind of driving that brian but more of the perez stuff coming in uh because he had passed as well and hopefully the rest of the year we don't have any more bad news yeah yeah i I hope this you know doesn't go in the thing of threes like it seems to with um other celebrities um well guys thanks you uh, thank you for joining and thank you all for listening um, we would like to know what you think about our coverage here of Neil. Uh, 
you know, was it good? Was it bad? Did we have any idea what we're talking about? I kind of wonder myself sometimes if I do. <laughs> uh, just, you know, give us an email at gotta get burned at gmail.com or you can uh, correspond with us on our Facebook page, Third Degree Burn. We're easy to find and we're getting new members every day, it seems lately. Yeah, we're well growing. over 400 now. Yeah. And um, we're getting a lot of members from, uh, looks like, uh, South American countries and and other areas around the world. So uh, I guess word's getting out uh, one way or the other. If you tell us how Neil affected your comic book reading or what, what are some of your favorite stories that Neil Adams drew? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think our next episode will be a regular burned episode. Um, But after that, we're going to probably look to dig into the uh, project Pegasus and work with Nigel. We can ramp up to 100 in that one. That'll be our that's going to be a logistics uh, bit of fun because Nigel lives in Japan, which uh, it is. is it, <laughs> well, I think I think that's like 16 or 15 hours ahead of us. Yeah, he said 16. Um, I, it's doable. It's it's I mean, hell, they, they recorded Andy Layden all the time and he's eight hours. So we can do we'll, it. We'll, we'll figure it out. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll figure it out one way or the other. I think we have to do a Saturday night to get him Sunday during the day or during the evening. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, be sure to uh, you know comment right back. Uh, let us know how you feel. Also, give us a, a review on uh, iTunes, formerly and more Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes. Uh, still have not gotten a new review on there, and uh, we need one. We need several. We need a lot to uh, increase our listener base, and we really, really would appreciate your help. All you got to do is just start up iTunes. Uh, I, I keep calling it iTunes, and I'm going to. Uh, and, uh, you know, just add a, rate, a, a review. And I'd, I'd love it if you did a five-star review, but tell us what you think. Tell others what you think because – you know, people go off of other people's opinions on what they want to uh, uh, listen to. So that's all okay. I'm going to say for uh, today. John, would you want to take us out or do you have anything you want to throw out there before we go? Well, it sounds like you pretty much took us out. Email us at gottagetburned at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Third Degree Burn. Follow us, like us, give us a five-star review, and you can choose a book, remember. Yeah. Five-star reviewers get to choose a book we cover. This sure. is true. Thanks, everyone. Say, say, all right. So uh, here we go, Brian. Say goodbye, Brian. Goodbye. And and Tim Elliott. Oh, so that was our master host, Brian Hughes. Oh, and our next master host, Tim Elliott. Say goodbye, Tim. And me, John Hyatt. I'll say sayonara. Ah. The game's afoot, huh? Our revels now are ended, Kirk. Cry havoc! And let's slip the dogs of war! <laughs> Boat! Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D, 
D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.